Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we have come and spoken to you words that accord with your majesty and glory, your character and nature. Father, we have spoken of your grace that provides salvation so rich and so free. We have spoken of the everlasting arms that will never fail, that we are safely held in. And Father, now we have the opportunity to hear you speak to us. Father, may we recognize that your word never fails. That it always accomplishes the purposes that you set to it for your glory. It is like the rain that falls from heaven and waters the earth below so that it would bring forth fruit. And so, Father, the word that you have ordained to go forth comes today into our hearts, into the soil of our lives. Father, may we have a torrential downpour of your word in our hearts today. So that by it, Father, we would grow up to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Father, may we be open to your Spirit's leading today as he takes these words of power and uses them as a sharp two-edged sword to pierce, Father, into our hearts to discern the thoughts and intentions that we have. May you reveal to us, Lord, and convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, Father. And Lord, may we, as we see the glory of Christ in your word today, may we be changed into that same image. Lord, may we leave this place different than when we first came in. This is a work only you can do. So, Father, do that work. Accomplish the purposes that you have today for your word among us, your people. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And we, Lord willing, will be finishing our look at 2 Peter 2. And particularly how this passage calls us, as, as Peter is calling us in his second letter to find power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Christ, he now issues his last warning to us, particularly warnings about false teachers. You know, I, I, it is amazing to me how often and how popular false teaching is. It is all around us in the world in which we live today. Uh, I was talking to someone recently, and, and they were asking me, this was actually at a, another venue that I had an opportunity to speak at, and they were asking me um, about, you know, is it okay to watch the preachers on television? And unfortunately, I had to say, the vast majority of them, no. There are some, there are a few that still remain committed to the Word of God, but false teaching is everywhere. It is trapping God's 
people. It is pulling people away from the church. And so Peter's warnings that are given here in 2 Peter that were given over 2,000 years ago are just as needed today as they were in his time. Now we've spent our time looking through 2 Peter chapter 2 when we've discussed the methods of false teachers, how they're depending upon their own human effort, how they are coming in deceptively, secretly. They seek to bring in divisive or heretical teachings. False teachers will often turn a blind eye to sin, sometimes even teaching that it is okay to indulge in things that the Scriptures come very clearly forbid, and that the motivation behind false teachers is that they would exploit God's people for greedy gain. We saw that in verses 1 through 3 of Second Peter. And then we saw the consequences for false teachers and how false teachers are going to face a clear judgment that is reserved for them and that even though they may seem to prosper today, there is a day coming where God will bring their condemnation. That they are, have a certain condemnation as they deny Christ. And then we see the pattern of judgment that God gives, giving three examples from the Old Testament of the angels that left their estate, of, of, Sod, of, of the time of Noah, and then of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we find, in the midst of Peter's rebuke and warning towards false teaching, he gives certain hope that if God is able to keep the wicked under, judge, under His wrath until the day of judgment, how much more will He be able to save those who turn to Christ? He knows how to rescue the godly from the trials that they face. And so there's a real reality for us as we languish in a world that is hating us, and then we find that not only is the world to which we are strangers and pilgrims, not only is that world hostile to us, but now there's hostility amongst us as well, that there will be those that rise up from within our midst that will cause problems. And yet, our hope is not placed on the removal of those difficulties. Our hope is placed in a God who knows how to rescue the godly. Then we saw, thirdly, their character. What is it that drives them? Well, they desire themselves to indulge in sinful activity. They revile ignorantly, boasting and, and building up their own pride. And then ultimately, they are greedy for gain. Well, Peter has done a lot of describing what is motivating them, what methods they're using, what they're seeking to do, and, and the dangers of what they're doing. But he really hasn't spent much time dealing with the content of their teaching. And I think that's intentional because I think we can see these other things that are sometimes very clearly displayed in false teachers more readily than the um, subtlety and the deception that we find in their actual teaching. And so now Peter, in verses 17 through 22, turns to showing how even the teachings of these false teachers bring about contradictions. So look with me in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. These, speaking of the false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping 
from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I want us to see three main contradictions that these false teachers put forward in their teaching. And the first thing we see is that false teachers promise substance, but have none. False teachers promise substance, but have none. In fact, the arrogance that drives them to say that they would come up and and be these great teachers of men is an indication of where they're seeking to derive the truth that they are speaking and spewing to God's people. Uh, again, it's, it's interesting that on the heels of verse 17, we have verse 16. And there, Peter points back to the fact that a donkey had to speak to Balaam with a human voice and restrain the prophet's what? Madness. And it's just interesting there that you would, you would think someone hearing a speaking donkey, you would think that's the person who's mad. And so, so it shows the length at which these false teachers have gone so that, that God has to use that which a madman would consider as happening as the very thing that restrains their own madness. It shows how desperately off they are. And so they have this arrogance about them that brings them to be, as Peter describes them, waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. They seem to promote their own ideas, promote their own, their own substance, but they have none. Particularly among the first century church, one particular heresy that really crept in very early was the heresy of Christian Gnosticism. Christian Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for knowledge or gnosis, and those Christian Gnostics would claim to have either had themselves attained or know a pathway to obtain a special knowledge that the rest of the world didn't know. These false teachers would do the same thing. They would come in and they would bring about the idea that they had some sort of special insight, some sort of special corner on the truth. And it would be attractive to people. They would say, well, look, so-and-so is such, such an intuitive speaker, or they have such good ideas, and it, it attracts people because it seems different than what they're hearing from the apostles and the prophets. You know, if, if there's one thing that we find in the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't seek to bring in some new plan of God. It's the same plan from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22. Christ saves. But yet these teachers would come in and seem to present that they have this corner on the truth. 
Well, this corner that they have, this idea that they would lift themselves up as some sort of repository of special knowledge, Peter says that they are waterless springs and mists driven by a a storm. Now, why is this? Why do they have no substance? And Jude gives us the answer in Jude chapter 8. These false teachers rely on not the Word of God, but rely on what? Their own dreams. And as a result of relying on themselves, they bring about defilement of the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. And Jude goes on to speak of them as the very same thing that Peter is saying. They're hidden reefs at your love, of your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. And then he gives these two examples from nature that describe something that seems to have substance but doesn't. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and then uprooted. We see... Particularly, Jude gives us some, some clarity on what these false teachers have and what, what, their, what their lack of substance brings about. They're waterless clouds swept along by winds. You know, have you ever been out there and you see this big, imposing rain cloud? And particularly, let's say it's been a dry period of time. Your grass looks like somebody took a blowtorch to it, all right? And so you're hopeful, yes, here comes the rain. There's this dark, imposing cloud that comes, and it comes, and it gets closer, and then it's over you, and then it begins to move away, and it goes away, and then finally you're like, wait a second, there's no rain. It's imposing, but it doesn't provide anything of substance that helps. No. The second example he gives is that of fruitless trees in late autumn. It's interesting he speaks of them as being these trees in late autumn. If you think about a tree that, that has stood the test of time, it's there, it's, it's now the time for harvest, and really the time for harvest has come and gone. And what fruit do you get from this tree? Nothing. And you've spent all year long caring for the tree, pruning the tree, watering the tree, fertilizing the tree, taking care of the tree. And then by late autumn, you realize this tree isn't going to give me anything. So what do you do with a tree that is doing nothing but sucking out resources, but not providing anything in return? What does a good orchard keeper, whatever they're called, I'm not sure what you call someone who keeps an orchard, but what does a good one do? He says, I'm done with this tree. I'm going to cut it out. I'm going to uproot it. That's what these false teachers are. They promise substance, but they have none. Now, why is this? Well, there's no no question that Peter is intentional with what he says at the end of chapter 1. Before he launches into this discussion of false teaching, he tells us in verse 20 and verse 21 of 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, that no prophecy of Scripture comes or originates from someone's own interpretation. In other words, Scripture does not have an impact when we rely on men, when we rely on ourselves. In fact, Scripture was never produced by the will of man, but rather God sent His Spirit inspiring men to write and to speak so that what they said was not the words of men, but the words of who? 
God. What are these false teachers doing? Well, Jude tells us they're relying on their strength, their dreams. They originate the teaching from themselves. In other words, they, turn the, they take the Scriptures and set it aside so that they can preach their own teachings. And the reality that Peter's pointing to, that with people who do that type of thing, there's no substance to it. It's empty. They can wane and wax eloquent in their speaking. They can ha- be the most dynamic public speakers in the world. I think one of the most popular um, false teachers today is probably one of the most effective communicators. And yet, when you hear what they're actually saying, there's nothing to it. False teachers may have big ministries, lots of money, fancy technical um, abilities, and and really nice uh, technology that lies behind them. But when you get down to what they're actually saying, you begin to realize that there's no substance to it. And there's no substance to it because there's no Scripture in it. And so Peter describes them this way, waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. You know, nothing's worse than being really thirsty, seeing a spring ahead, getting to that spring, and you look down, and instead of there being nice, cool, refreshing water, there's nothing but dry sand there. Now, we don't live in desert climates here today, although, I don't know, maybe sometimes you feel like that with the heat that we had this past week. But I remember during COVID, one of the things that almost every public building did is they shut down their water fountains. I remember I was someplace and I was really, really thirsty and I saw a water fountain off to the back and in the background. And so I walk over there and there was no sign or anything. I'm like, here it is, the holy grail of water fountains, one that still works. I push the button, nothing. That was a very disappointing water fountain. And that's what Peter is saying false teachers are. They're waterless springs. He doesn't even describe them as clouds. He describes them as mist. Mist driven by a storm. You know, if you've ever been to an amusement park on a hot day, sometimes they have those, those mister things that sort of mist the water and they have fans blowing or whatever. I remember I was at an amusement park. This was years ago. And, and waiting in line to, to go into, into a ride. And um, the wind blew and it blew the mist completely away from everybody that was in the line. It was useless. And that's what false teachers are. They're useless. You know, I've heard people say, well, sometimes they say some good things. Yeah, a clock, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? But you don't go to the clock to tell what time it is, do you? Because it's not dependable. And so we need to recognize that false teachers, because they reject the authority of God's Word, have no substance. Jeremiah puts it 
clearly as this is a, one of the things that God's people have done. And it, he calls the heavens, he calls creation to witness and be appalled, to be shocked and utterly desolate. This is what his people have done in committing two evils. They have forsaken me. And what false teachers do when turning from the word of God is they forsake God's word. They forsake God himself. And God himself is the only fountain of living waters. And instead, what false teachers do is they hew out for themselves cisterns. They point to themselves as the repository of good water. But the reality is their cisterns are broken and they can hold no water. Now, the rebuke here that Jeremiah is giving is for every single one of God's people. We all can do this. We all are tempted to turn from the satisfaction that God alone provides and seek our own way. We're all like sheep who have gone astray and turned every one of us to our own ways. But false teachers not only do this, they then will present to God's people, come to me for that sustenance. And so false teachers promise substance, but have none. Secondly, false teachers promise freedom, but offer only bondage. False teachers promise freedom, but only offer bondage. Look at what's said in verse 18 and 19. For speaking loud boasts of folly... They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You know, the message of these false teachers would be, look, you don't have to be restricted in your personal life. And particularly, their focus would be on the sexual promiscuity of the society in which they live. They would look, live it up. Go ahead and engage in the sexual debaucheries of that society. It's okay. You're free. God's grace covers everything, right? You're free to go about and live these sinful actions. In fact, so Prideful are they in this that Peter says they speak loud boasts of folly. They're fools when they get up and say these things boldly from the world. They don't, in front of the world, they do not find shame in sinful actions. They actually view the sinful actions as a virtue. And then what they do is they entice others to do the same. What Peter uses this term entice, it actually is a word that comes from hunting and fishing, like a fishing lure. They dangle the bait of sinful indulgence and sensual activities and going ahead and and just going full bore into sexual promiscuity, not having any type of idea of, of biblical sexual ethics. They dangle that in front of people and say, look, you can live it up. You can enjoy life. Go for it. And when someone grabs a hold of that and gives themselves full scale into it, then they pull them in 
exploiting them for their own means. They lure by bait. They hook these unstable individuals that are in the church and instead of leading them into the truth of Christ that denies sin, denies self, and seeks to follow Him, they say, enjoy your life through sinful activities. What they end up doing is turning these people back to the corruption that they themselves are slaves of. If you look in verse 19, he says, they promise freedom. You can be free but you yourself are a slave of corruption. In chapter 1, verse 4, one of the things that Peter begins this letter in discussing is that the people who he's writing to have escaped the corruption that is in the world by doing what? Becoming partakers of the divine nature, he says in verse 4. That we have these great, precious promises from God that call us to escape the sinful indulgence of this world. And false teachers say, run back to that bondage. Run back and live it up however you want to. And so what they do is by giving them their own thinking, which is not based in God's thinking, not based in the truth of God and His Word, but in their own thinking, then their wicked hearts lead them astray and they seek to lead others astray. calling them to continue to not escape the corruption of the world, but to get deeper into it. And so their message of freedom or liberty to sin is no message of freedom at all. It is a message to continue in slavery. That's what Peter says. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And Peter's Employment here is that it would be Christ who overcomes us, not sin. And yet these false teachers call for that sinful actions. Really, the, the true freedom that we see in Christ is so different than what Peter mentions, what these false teachers offer. We see that first of all, it doesn't come through the thinking of men, but it comes through Christ alone. Notice what Jesus says in John 8, 34 through 36. Truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, which is what the false teachers were pointing out in Peter's time, what are they a slave of? Sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. One of the wonderful hopes of the message of Jesus Christ is that He frees us from sin. That we're dead to it. And we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And so we can only find that freedom through Christ. But then that freedom turns away from sin, not towards it. In Romans chapter 6, 17 through 18, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin are now free. But notice he doesn't say free. He thinks about what it means to be free. Being obedient from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, we are now overcome by righteousness. We're a slave to righteousness. That's the wonderful difference that the gospel brings about. And so he says in Romans 8, 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so true freedom turns away from sin. True freedom then causes us, because Paul spoke of that standard of teaching. What is that standard of teaching? It's not the ideas of men. It's the eternal truths of Scripture. And so when we read God's Word, when we come to it, when we uh, meditate upon it, when the Spirit uses it, we come to it and we do it. True freedom does God's Word. James 1.25, we know this very well. We're not to be just hearers of the Word, but what? Doers. How do we do this? Because the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty or freedom, and perseveres in that freedom, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so what do we do with this freedom that we have from sin? We use it to serve others. Paul tells the church at Galatia, you were called to what? Freedom. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What the false teachers were teaching is, go ahead, use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Paul says, don't do that. So what are we to do instead? And I think it's telling what he tells us to do here. Instead of seeking opportunities for sin, we need to seek opportunities to serve. Notice what he says, but through love, serve one another. You know, one of the things that they talk about in counseling is is when, when you're discussing someone who's struggling with things or counseling them, that one of the things that they, d- they have us talk about or w- that we would ask a question as I'm counseling someone is I would say, well, how much free time do you have on your hands? Because idle time and idle hands very easily leads to all sorts of temptation and sin. So Paul gives a very practical application here. If you're idle with your time, if you're idle with your hands, if you're not doing anything, instead of waiting for the temptation to come, which it ultimately will do, rather spend that time serving others. And in doing that, you fulfill the whole law in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, False teachers promise freedom. Go ahead, engage in sinful activity. It's no big deal. God's grace will cover it. You can enjoy the sinful actions, particularly the sinful actions of the flesh in this world. But really what they're doing is they're calling you back to the bondage that Christ has shed His blood to free you from. And then Peter closes by speaking of the great warning about false teachers. They come up from among us seeming to promise genuine Christianity, 
But instead of bringing genuine Christianity, they bring greater condemnation. Look, just listen to the words of Peter here in verses 20 through 22. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. So the idea here is not just someone who struggles with a sin or who slips up at a temptation. This is someone who says, I'm going to actively pursue sin and still claim to be a Christian. I'm going to actively pursue that which is at odds and incongruous with who my Savior is, but yet I'm still going to claim Christ. What does Peter say to a person that is fully given over to sin? He says, the last state has become worse for them than the first. What does he mean? Verse 21, it would have been better. This this is shocking language from Peter. It would have been better for someone to have never known the way of righteousness. Then, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Peter's response here is, someone who does that, it would have been better that they never heard the gospel in the first place. It would have been better that they would have never interacted with the church at all. And so, we find verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What, had, what these false teachers had done is they had seen and encountered the gospel. And they had interacted with the church. What Peter is describing here about their knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and escaping the defilements of the world is not genuine conversion, it's pretending. And particularly in the first century, the church was known for its radical love and care for those that were its members. But you had to be a member. You had to confess Christ Jesus with your mouth and you had to be baptized to make a public confession of that faith. That was, that was basic Christianity 101. But what was, what was the responsibility of the church? Well, they would just listen to the confession. They would baptize as this declaration and then they would accept. The church is never called to be overly critical of someone's confession. We're called to embrace those who claim Christ. But in the midst of that, are there people that can lie? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, there were people in God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, who were a part of His people, but they lied about their true devotion to to Yahweh. The same thing happens in the church today. There are liars who lie among God's people. But yet these false teachers would benefit. The church, you know, what happened in Acts 2 after they came and and there were so many thousands of people saved, 
They took all their possessions and they what? Held them in common. They helped each other. They would feed each other. They would clothe each other. They would provide for each other. And so that becomes very attractive to somebody who wants to have those things provided for them in their life, but yet doesn't want to let go of the sinful actions of their life. So that's where false teachers creep in secretly. And what Peter is saying very clearly here is that not everyone who says to Christ, Lord, Lord, are His people. And in fact, some of the, as Jesus tells us, some of those people who say, Lord, did we not do these things in Your name? Christ will say to them, Depart from Me, I never knew You. And so by their wholesale giving over to sinful activity, these false teachers demonstrate their own wickedness. And this leaves them in a worse state than before. They heard it. They claimed it. They said they believed it. But then they turned back to those sinful actions. And particularly, they not only themselves turned back, but they dangled the bait in front of others of God, other people who were a part of the church. And for that, they face a more severe judgment. One thing that brings sobriety to my life is the reality that as someone who proclaims the word of God, I will face a more severe judgment on the day where I stand before Christ. Because he's entrusted me with his word. And one of the things that, that brings that about here is what Peter's talking about. And so then Peter gives two more examples from nature. You know what they're like? They're like dogs that return to vomit. Now, I have a dog, and I have had the unpleasant experience of seeing this. It is repulsive. And what more, when this has happened, the dog doesn't just go back to the vomit and sort of sniff around and then sort of take little bites and nibbles. It's voracious. What is wrong with you, mutt? I mean, it's like scooping. I have to grab it, and it's pulling hard to get back to the vomit. The very thing that, they, that the dog got rid of because it was somehow upsetting them, they want to, upsetting their stomachs, they want to return back and just consume voraciously. And that is just what false teachers do who say, go ahead and live it up in sin. They're going right back to the most disgusting thing in a Christian's life, sin. And then he speaks of pigs, Sows, which I realized, I think the last time I read this a couple weeks ago, I, I, I pronounced it wrong. So, I have a problem with O-W words. One of the first sermons I preached was um, about the Noahic Covenant, the, the promise in the rainbow, but I kept pronouncing it bow when I preached it. So, so this, is, this is, or sow, <laughs> did it again. This is a female pig. What's a pig do? You know, I, I mean, I don't know if any of you have any pet pigs. If not, why haven't you brought them here for a pig roast? But anyways, um, 
All right, now I was going to upset people. All right. Ham is delicious. I, I, I say, say all the time, there's that movie, Babe, about that little pig, and I'm just like, man, he looks so good. Um, anyways, I digress. What does a pig do? You, you, pig, you wash it up, you know, make it look all nice, take it to the farm show, and, and the pig is all nice and clean, and then once the, the minute it sees a big puddle of mud, what does it want to do? Run and roll around in it after it's been cleaned up. By the way... Golden retrievers who have just had their baths also do the same thing. It's disgusting. And so Peter uses these two disgusting examples to describe professing Christians who run back to a life filled with the filth of sin. Sin has to be repulsive to the believer. What false teachers do is they seek to take the vomitory leftovers and arrange it nicely on a plate. They maybe spruce it up with some garlic and some oregano, maybe put a little piece of parsley on the side, make it look really appetizing. But listen, vomit is still what? Vomit. So we need to beware of those who call us back to that type of disgusting behavior. Sin is disgusting in all its forms. Are you disgusted by sin? Are you disgusted by your own sin? Scripture constantly reminds the church that there will be those among its ranks who are not true believers and what are true what are what are true believers are known by their fruit which means unbelievers are also known by their fruit or lack of it Jesus issues a rebuke to the false teachers of Israel He says woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces You neither enter yourselves, nor you allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across the sea, and you do it to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. False teachers Don't offer anything positive. They only bring greater corruption. It was true of the Pharisees, and it's true of false teaching in the church today. Paul charges Timothy, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we think, oh, that's all the wicked, sinful people outside of the church. But notice what he says. They will have the appearance of what? Godliness. But they'll deny its power. And then he issues this strong warning. What should we do with those type of people? Avoid them. 
And John speaks of how this is a, rep, represents, they went out from us because they were, what? Not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be cl- become plain that they are not of us. So, how should we respond to what Peter says here today? There's just four things I'd like us to consider very quickly. And really, I want us to look at something that Paul says. Paul in Acts chapter 20 is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He knows that he's eventually going to end up in Rome, and he knows that there he's going to lose his life for the sake of the gospel. So this is the last opportunity he has to speak with the Ephesian elders, those whom he loves dearly, and they love him. It's a beautiful picture. I'd recommend this afternoon if you have some time. Well, not if you have some time. You have some time to read one chapter of Scripture. Read Acts 20. And Paul comes in, and he he warns these Ephesian elders of what Jesus had warned them of, of what his epistles were warning them of. He warns them about the fact that false teachers are going to come up. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce Wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, what? Be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. Which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Just quickly, four things. And I know you said, I heard someone laugh like, just to close, I've got four more points. These will go quick, I promise. And I know you don't believe me, but... How do we respond? Know the word. Paul comes to them and says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That provides the foundation upon which these Ephesian elders are to judge teaching. Just as Peter has said, you judge teaching based upon its substance, and if its substance is not in the word of God, reject it. Again, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Secondly, know yourself. Notice what Paul says to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves. After you remember the whole counsel of God that I've declared to you, recognize your own propensities. Recognize where the bait will be most attractive to you in your life. False teachers will dangle that bait so that you may take it Learn to turn away from it. Know yourself. Thirdly, know false teaching. He speaks about how these fierce wolves will come in among you, that they will speak twisted things to draw away disciples. 
after them. So our response, knowing that that's the case, is we need to be alert. Which means that we need to know what type of false teaching is out there. So just very quickly, I want to go over what I think are four main false teachings in the world today. The first is what I call the new sexual ethic. There are Christians, supposed Christians, who are telling other Christians that it's okay to indulge in sinful sexual activities. That it's okay as long as two people are committed and and loving each other, they can engage in sexual activity. That it's okay that that which God clearly defines as sinful activity that is beyond His plan for one man and one wife in a covenant relationship, that that is the only means by which God intends for sexual fulfillment to be brought about. Yet there are those in the church saying, you can do whatever you want to. It is the, it, to me, that is so clearly in line with what Peter is warning against. This new sexual ethic seeks to turn away not only what the clear teaching of Scripture is, but what the church has said for millennia about LGBTQIA issues. And they use it underneath the term affirmation. That's the first one. Secondly, the health and wealth gospel. There continues to be a strong influence in the church today, particularly among certain charismatic and Pentecostal groups that seek to teach that you can have a life filled with wealth and health and then they, they're, they're brazen about it. They say, so long as you plant a seed gift into my ministry. They're fleecing the flock, obviously, and people are going after it. And some of it has been clearly called out, but it continues to plague God's people. And here's the thing, most of what you see on the television that claims to be Christian television is health and wealth gospel. And it is false teachers fleecing the church. Thirdly, there is what I call the political gospel. There's a growing movement towards what's called Christian nationalism in the church today. The idea that through political change we can turn America around or turn it into a Christian Nation, listen, we're already in the Christian nation. It is the kingdom of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't political things that we can be doing, but let us never put our hope in the political process in America. And what is happening is these political parties are exploiting that idea and draining the bank accounts of believers for the sake of bringing about this Christian nation. Listen, I I want America to stand for righteousness and justice as much as the next person, but that happens through the individual change of the gospel in individual lives. And thirdly, I would say that there is the social justice gospel. Just as the gospel has implications for political action, so the gospel has social justice implications. We need to love mercy and justice. We need to seek to do rightly among others, but the social justice teaches that the gospel is ultimately not about liberating people from their sin, but liberating them from the oppressive systems that have exploited them. Now listen, we should seek to fight against 
exploitation in any means. But listen, the gospel is about ultimately saving you from the most exploitive system in this world, sin. It's not about turning back the systems that have exploited you in this world. And again, we can, there are implications for both of those things, both the Christian nation, uh, the political gospel, and the social justice gospel, but they themselves are not the gospel. The gospel is repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ. So those are four false teachings that we see in the world today. The new sexual ethic, health and wealth gospel, the political gospel, and the social justice gospel. Which then finally brings us to the last thing that Paul says. We're supposed to know the word, we know ourselves, we know what false teaching is, and then what does he end with? Know the word again. You think he's trying to emphasize something? Notice what he says at the end here. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to do two things, build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Know the word. So how do we respond to false teaching? Know the word. Know yourself. Know false teaching. Know the word. Peter issues these pilgrim warnings in 2 Peter chapter 2, and he's not done. Next week, we'll jump into 2 Peter chapter 3, where he speaks of a more practical temptation of the mind regarding the return of Christ, and then warns us of God's sure judgment, and then provides hope for those who look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. Lord, may we truly be alert. False teaching is all around us, and we thank you, Father, that you have given us your word to guide and direct us, to build us up, to establish us in the faith. So, Father, may we seek to lean upon that firm foundation we have in the word of God. Work among your people here today. May your word Accomplish your purposes. We pray this in Christ's name.